Most politicians probably wouldn't like it very much if you compare them to a famous movie mafioso, but Kevin McCarthy is not most politicians. Today we talk about how the Speaker of the House is managing his unruly caucus and why he seems to be taking a page from the Vito Corleone School of Leadership. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So today we're going to be doing something a little bit different than our usual programming. We're not going to be talking about lawyers, but instead lawmakers, and specifically the Speaker of the House, California Republican Kevin McCarthy. It was less than two months ago that McCarthy finally won the speakership after a grueling 15-ballot fight. But now that some of the dust has settled after that fight, we're starting to get a better sense of how McCarthy is going to try to hold together his fractious, razor-thin Republican majority. Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins just came out with a story this morning about that. And McCarthy's strategy involves giving more power to five different ideological factions within the House. And, as Emily reports, McCarthy is calling these factions the Five Families, a nod to the warring mafia clans from, yes, The Godfather. What exactly is going on here? Why is McCarthy doing this, and does this make a debt ceiling default more or less likely? I got into all this with Emily, but first I asked her, why is the speaker leaning into all this mafia stuff? So, I mean, part of it's a numerical thing, right? You have these five different ideological groups in the Republican Party. You kind of, each of them have staked out a little bit of their own territory. And yes, there are some tensions between these groups. You saw that very much during the speakership battle. And I wouldn't be shocked if you saw it again as we're moving towards funding the government via appropriations, as we move toward the debt limit. Some of these big showdowns, you have these potentials for these tensions between the five families. Now, the funny thing is that, you know, some some heads have kind of like leaned into it they're like oh it's like the godfather it's so funny la 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 and then you had scott perry with uh the house freedom caucus be like he's like i don't like that name he's like have you seen the movies it doesn't end well for some of the families so it has a bit of a, a different a different vibe um but i think it's 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 a just a, a play off the number and be kind of a play off the fact that you know these are it, it's a similar group of folks right these are all house republicans they have in some ways some very similar goals but at the same point they you do have some tensions in between individual groups. Yeah, and uh, uh, spoiler alert, what uh, Representative uh, Perry is referring to is that at the end of the movie, only one family remains. So uh, certainly he doesn't want to end up like that. Um, but let's actually now move away from cinematic history and get into the current moment. Who are each of these five groups? Can you tell me about, you know, very quickly, um, you know, who they are and what do they all stand for? Yeah, so I will kind of start with the more ideological ones and I'll kind of move from the far right side of the spectrum towards the center. Uh, on the furthest right, you got the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, you know, these are the folks who were the ones to mostly hold up Kevin McCarthy for speakership. They're the ones who aren't afraid no to say no. They're not afraid to buck their caucus. At the same point, you do have folks like Scott Perry himself, like Byron Donalds, like Chip Roy, who do want to come to the negotiating table and actually find a way forward. Not all of them are kind of like, you know, the rebels without a cause. Some of them are rebels with a cause. Uh, 
then from there, you've got the Main Street Caucus. Um, Main Street will tell you that they're very conservative. They'll tell you to check their heritage scores. They, they got the conservative cred, but their main thing is that they want to get things done. And it's about like 60, 70 members. So it, it's pretty bulked up at this point. Um, continuing down the line, you got the Republican Governance Group. Uh, this is basically your more moderate members, if you will sort of your more centrist, the ones who are more likely to work with Democrats. And you have a lot of folks who are from swing districts. And so in a way, these are the majority makers. These are the folks that gave Republicans their current power in the House. And then problem solvers. Problem solvers and Republican, a lot of the stuff I just said about the Republican governance group, you can say about problem solvers. The big thing with problem solvers is that it's a bipartisan caucus. And so for every, it's like it's like Noah on the ark, like two by two. Yeah, for every Republican, you have to have a Democrat going in. So they take that very, very seriously. The group that I saved for last is the Republican uh, Study Committee. And I saved it for last because it's not quite as much of an ideological caucus as the other ones are. I mean, they're huge. They have like 75% of all House Republicans are members. They have folks from across the spectrum, but they're a little bit more of a policy group. You kind of go to them and they're like, look, here's the bills that are coming down the pipe. Here's the things we like, maybe the things we don't like, maybe some of the concerns that we have. It's very much more policy oriented. That's actually really helpful that you described it that way, especially because some of the more moderate groups, I was like, seems like there's a lot of overlap here. But actually now the way you described it, I can see the distinctions between the, the, the multiple groups. Um, OK, so we have the five families. What are, is Speaker McCarthy doing to wrangle all of them and to make them all happy? What, what is the, the way that he's handling all this? So it's really interesting to see McCarthy's speakership style because at this point it's kind of been give everyone a seat at the table and take the time to work through things. Uh, and certainly there, you know, there are some pros and cons to that method of, of doing business. But what he wants to do is kind of bring all of these different caucuses in and put them at the same table and say, hey, these are things that we're thinking of. What are the potential pitfalls? What can you do? What can't you do? Where can we agree? Where can we find common ground? You saw a little bit of this happened during the speakership. And, and that's kind of when I think McCarthy and some of these groups realized uh, that they were going to need to really work together with that five vote margin. Uh, David Joyce, the chair of the Republican governance group, that sort of more, more moderate centrist group, right, right. you know, he told me that, you know, he, he heard that McCarthy was kind of cutting deals with some of these other groups. And he's like, look, we need to be at the table too. All of us together need to be at the table. So certainly McCarthy has in, including them in the talks and he's taken the additional step. There's this group called the Elected Leadership Committee, and this is kind of think of it as sort of like the few members, a little bit more in McCarthy's inner circle. And so basically they, they went to all these five caucuses and they said, we want you to send a representative to be there at every meeting. And so we can kind of have that dialogue back and forth. What's leadership thinking of? What are these groups thinking of? And so every group has now sent someone forward to that. And that's kind of, I think, a, a bit of a new development that's really showing how close these groups are working together. Is this so if I understand it correctly, is this kind of a way to say like, hey, a, a member of all five of these different groups will be in leadership, kind of? Kind of. I mean, I wouldn't go just as far to say they're in leadership because there is still definitely a dividing line between Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Tom Emmer, Elise Stefanik, and then the rest of everyone in leadership. Um, but I think it's basically saying it's an acknowledgement that with a five four vote margin, passing legislation is an incredibly tough thing to do. And the idea is that to best do that, what they need to do is kind of hear everyone out at the beginning 
of the process in the middle of the process. And, you know, we'll see as, as things kind of end, it might sort of wind up that leadership kind of has to be the one to finally say yay or nay, but at least they can kind of go in with eyes wide open on where the concerns are going to be, who's going to be upset if X, Y, Z is left out or, or included. So the reason why I asked that is because in the past, uh, we've heard from a lot of people, both Republicans and Democrats, that the speakership is almost like a dictatorship. That's a quote, actually, that you had in your story. Um, it seems like this is a move, a big move away from that. Is that true? Is is that is this is really sort of giving the backbenchers kind of more of a say, which is something that I think a lot of people in the House have been asking for for a very long time? I mean, to a certain extent, absolutely. You with Speaker Nancy Pelosi, I mean, she really, she also had that five vote margin. She really, really kept her caucus in line, got a lot of respect for doing so. But she, you know, in the sticks and carrots model, she might have relied a little bit more on the sticks than we're seeing McCarthy, who seems to really, really favor the carrots. Uh, And so in that regard, you know, with Pelosi, she came under criticism. There were bills that were kind of, you know, that leadership kind of dumped on everyone 24 hours, 36 hours before a vote takes place. And that ran into issues. I mean, there were times where Pelosi would bring out a bill and suddenly you had frontline Democrats coming to her office and saying, we cannot vote for this. You cannot move this. And there there were issues when you had that. At the same point, because you kind of kept the group small and tight, you were able to move things a little bit faster rather than asking for for everyone's input all the time. So I think there are pros and cons with it. I mean, you definitely have seen, really since the 1970s, various rules come to the House that have kind of helped consolidate power within leadership, made them sort of bigger than they had been previously. Um, You know, some of that there's now pushback against. I mean, that was the entire speakership battle, right? The idea that rank and file did not have enough power, that they wanted more power, and that they wanted these particular rules to get more. And, And you, the interesting thing is, you saw that push really from the far right. But then there was even one point, I think, where, you know, AOC was was uh, responding to questions on Instagram. And she's like, look, she's like, I disagree with a lot of what they're doing. She's like, but there are like, you know, just a few things in here where like they're kind of right. We do need to decentralize power in the House. Mm, that's really interesting. And just so we're all on the same page, I, I think what you're talking about uh, is where, you know, the speaker in the past, I guess, can sort of subvert the whole schoolhouse rock process where, you know, a bill's introduced and it goes through the committee and then it goes to the subcommittee and members can, you know, offer amendments at every step of the way. The power of the speakership is that you can bypass all of that and just drop a bill and say, we're voting on this in, uh, you know, a day or two days. And it sounds like that's something that Speaker McCarthy is, you know, really saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. Do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, look at their track record, right? Republicans rolled out a handful of bills and that initial rule that passed right up top. And they're like, hey, we're going to just use this rule to set up and go ahead and pass these pieces of legislation that we're totally sure that our entire conference is on board with. And you ran into issue after issue after issue. And some of it's stuff that could potentially be resolved, just like lawmakers saying, hey, wait, I have a question about this bill. I'm not sure what it is. I need some clarification. This should go through committee. But then there were others like um, Chip Roy's amnesty immigration bill that caused a lot of concern. And so it's kind of, again, showing, you know, with with Pelosi, I think there, again, she had been doing what she did for a while. She had been in leadership for a while. She had kind of sort of built up, um, 
you know, to the point where she could really handle that five vote margin in the way that she did. McCarthy's a much newer leader. And the fact of the matter is that being in the majority is just so different than being in the minority. In the minority, it's just okay, we all band together and reject whatever the majority is putting forward today. But now a lot of members, they're like, oh, like, th this is real. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not messing around anymore. Like the stuff that we're passing is actually going through. And we kind of need to make sure that everyone is really on board with this. All right. So finally, I wanted to talk about how this could potentially go wrong. And what I mean by that is, you know, the benefits to having a centralized system where the speaker has a ton of power is that you can meet deadlines and you can act really fast. And the House, of course, has a lot of deadlines coming up specifically with the debt ceiling. Is it possible that this kind of decentralized structure that uh, McCarthy is rolling out here could backfire there and that it'll you know, take a lot longer to act on these big deadline bills and that they may miss the deadlines? Absolutely. That's a huge, huge concern right now. I mean, just anything with the debt limit is a particularly big concern because a lot of these groups, right, you want to negotiate. When do you have the most negotiating power? When you're right down to the wire. I mean, heck, with the speaker's race, you know, they, they even had more negotiating power after they kind of had the first vote, right? That's when the pressure was really on. That's when you started to see them racking up a few more wins than they would have got otherwise. Of course, you don't have that with the debt limit. The debt limits limit is the limit. <laughs> you can't roll over and, and have everything be, be just fine. And so that is going to be a really huge thing. And it's going to be a test for this strategy of having more people around the table. Um, I mean, you have seen a couple of these groups, the Republican Study Committee come out with a number of their proposals on the debt limit. It's pretty broad stuff, to be honest, at this point. And you're expecting to see that from a couple other groups as well. And, and the question is just, you know, is there going to be overlap? Are they going to actually be able to get this done? Is McCarthy going to have to kind of start stepping in? And is he going to have to abandon the approach of we're all going to come together and start actually twisting some arms and, and kind of, you know, putting some feet to the fire? Um, I think the debt limit's really going to be the first big test for McCarthy because it's the one where, you know, he's, act, he's in the speaker role. They have the rules set up. They have everyone in place. It's just a different dynamic than the speaker's race. And it will be very, very interesting to see how the five families uh, factor into it. Uh, those certainly are all going to be players exactly what roles they take in the end, if they all cross the finish line holding hands, or if, you know, one of them's dragging the other through, uh, I think really, really remains to be seen. But these are, are certainly five groups to keep an eye on going forward. <laughs> it's going to be really fun this year and next year. And we'll have Emily back on uh, to talk about all the fireworks. Uh, Emily Wilkins with BGov. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you so much, David. This was a blast. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week -week accounting of the Supreme Court, the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.